0: past week I picked up a copy of the News and Observer because the front page article arrested my attention and it introduced a, a, a new campaign by an atheist organization called Freedom from Religion Foundation. The term they use, many of them within the atheistic world, is the term free thinking that's grown to be a popular phrase, a little more sophisticated, a little more positive thinking or sounding than atheism or agnosticism. Free thinking basically means freedom from the belief of a creator God to whom or before whom we all one day will will stand, and it gives the false impression. Of course, we know from Scripture of of freedom. Uh, the word atheist, by the way, is actually a Greek compound word thea or theos, God, and a a the alpha prefix, which means no. An atheist, atheos, is one who believes in no God. Whatever they call themselves. That's the core of their disbelief, we could say it. Well, this Raleigh News article announced a billboard campaign that began last month. It's going to continue through April. Not surprisingly, during the same time the church acknowledges the crucifixion and resurrection of God the Son. But I went online and I found all the billboards and read them all, and as the article in the News and Observer said, this is unique because not only is there a billboard with a quote from each of these individuals, their picture is on the billboard, along with their name and where they live. So they're obviously desiring to be known for their unbelief. The campaign includes 12 billboards in all. Let me, let me quote a few of them to give you the idea. A One man from Kerry Says on his billboard that will be out if it's not already up, Science is my co pilot. Obviously, that's a pun on uh, the popular bumper sticker. God is my co pilot, which is equally horrible theology. Uh, I would hope that God is not your co pilot. I hope he's the pilot and you're glad to be on the plane, period. (laughs) Another billboard has a couple of teenage girls who claim to be atheists who say, We put all our faith in science which is a contradiction in terms, but you get the idea of what they're saying. A woman identifies herself as a stay-at-home mom, a non-theist. I'm not sure what the difference is between a non-theist and atheist. But she says, I don't need a higher power to have a higher purpose. Here's an author with a quote next to his smiling face. I write fiction. I don't believe it. Obviously a reference to the Word of God. Another billboard with a truck driver, who says, I'm saved from religion. Wouldn't you love to have an opportunity to deliver the gospel to him and tell him you cannot be saved by religion either? This one was ironic. This billboard reads, Reason over dogma, all caps, always. Reason over dogma, always, exclamation point, which is rather dogmatic. (laughs) It's like saying we take a stand against people who take a stand. One more. This retiree writes, We've got the whole world in our hands. That really sums it up, doesn't it? I I looked at these faces and, and stared at them for some time with sadness and hope while they believe or while they live that they'll believe. But it sums it up. It's my world, not God's. It's my life, not God's. It's my will, not God's. It's my planet, not the Creator's. free thinking is nothing really any more than what Paul describes in Romans chapter 1, which reveals the underpinnings of mankind's aversion to the thought of God. They suppress the truth. They know intuitively by looking at creation that there is a Creator, and instead of thanking Him and, and submitting to Him, they refuse or resist the truth of Him, and then they resort to speculation and they proclaim themselves to be wise or, as in this campaign, to be free in their thinking. In reality, Paul writes, their foolish hearts are only darkened in their unbelief. Romans 1.21. Like the famous lines of William Henley's poem, Invictus, which reads, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul." Now, I could go on and on, and just about everybody in this audience would say, "Yeah, you're right, Stephen. Go get them. Go after those atheists. You know, tell them." Frankly, I don't have nearly as much trouble with a practicing atheist outside the church as I do with a practical atheist inside the church. And evidently, it troubled James enough to give us what he's about to give us. We could all pitch a fit, by the way. We could all have a rally. We could pick it. Maybe we could throw some dollars together and come up with our own billboard. Maybe quote a verse. All the while ignoring an epidemic of thought growing inside the church among those who say they believe in the existence of God but have practically nothing whatsoever to do with them. Practical atheists. Atheists in practical terms. They attend a church, they get married to someone they choose to love. They choose a vocation that seems interesting. They grow a family. They buy and sell homes and cars. They expand their portfolios and their investments, and they, they ride the current of culture without ever including God. Now, you might not spot it right away. Practical atheism will come out, though, a little more clearly in the advice that you might hear them giving their they're children, you know, what you need to do, honey, is you need to get a profession that, that pays well. We don't want you to struggle like we did, which is absolutely carnal advice. Maybe God wants them to struggle. In fact, shouldn't God be the one you go to about that profession or career? What we want you to do is we want you to meet a nice boy or a nice girl. We want you to get a good college education. We want you to land a good job so that you can live a nice life. Surely God would want all of that for you. You don't even need to really bother asking him because mom and dad don't ask him either. See, practical atheism is living and thinking and deciding without ever giving any serious thought the Word of God much less the wisdom of God. Practical atheists fill our churches and they watch their P's and Q's. They try to stay out of serious trouble but they will never agonize with the Lord over questions relative to their own lives. Lord am I really pleasing you? Is this decision that I'm about to make acceptable to you? Would you please direct my steps today? Lord, would you give me wisdom at school today? I want to live out my relationship with the word, the living word and and the written word. Lord, help me at this very moment as I encounter a new week at at the job. I I, I know temptation is waiting there for me. Would you help me? I surrender to you to enable me to overcome the temptation to to lie or to gossip or to to flirt or to steal or to cheat or to procrastinate or to goof off or whatever. Lord, I want to represent you well today. My life is yours. Augustine's classic statement, love God and do as you please. What he meant was pursue God's glory, follow him with abandon, passionately desire his pleasure, love God and do as you please, meaning give him the right to change what pleases you. But love God and do as you please is turned around by practical atheists so that it simply reads, do as you please and God will probably trot along. It's practiced by millions of people who say they believe in God but have very little to do with Him. Many are no doubt self-deceived and unconverted, unregenerate having never come to genuine faith and repentance, to them the Apostle Paul would issue the challenge, examine yourselves to see if you are indeed in the faith. 2 Corinthians thirteen five. But I don't think that's who James is writing, as we're going to see. He's going to challenge practical atheism among believers so that we are challenged who live like them, in practical terms. In fact, it'd be easy to say, well, he's just talking to unbelievers, so we're off the hook. No, it's possible for a genuine believer to live a self-absorbed, self-centered, disobedient life. I mean, think about it. Is it possible for a Christian to be self-centered? Is it possible for a Christian to think more of his own pleasure and desires than God's pleasure? Is it possible for a Christian to make a decision without ever asking God's counsel? Is that possible? Three of us believe it is. (laughs) But when is the last time we looked in the mirror with any measure of honesty? The particular mirror that I want to hold up is the one delivered, as you know, by the half-brother of our Lord to Jewish believers scattered throughout the empire the mirror of God's Word. I'm looking at James chapter 4 where James describes the lifestyle of a practical atheist. He doesn't call into question their conversion. He calls into question their character and their lifestyle. Now what I want to do is read verse 13. We'll just go to the end of the chapter and then we'll go back and take it apart. Okay? Come now, verse 13 says, You who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, here's what you ought to say. If the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it to him, it is sinning. It's a lifestyle of sin in its arrogance and its boasting. Now, in the text that we just read, the practical atheist is making at least five choices all on his own. Let's go back and and take a look. First, he is choosing his own timetable. Look at verse 13. "Come now, you who say, "Today or tomorrow." The word translated by the way, "you who say," is referring to someone who is carefully reasoning out his thoughts. He's mapped it out. This is not a haphazard. This isn't a spontaneous say, we're going to do something today or tomorrow." This is someone who's thought it through, reasoned it out, and he's come to the conclusion that this enterprise that he's about to begin, the planning of it, this is the best day, no later than tomorrow, tomorrow at the latest, now is the perfect time according to the way I'm looking at it. Have you prayed about it? Why? Why? None of this is wrong. God wants me to be happy, of course, and and, and I'm not violating anything that I don't. I'm sure he wouldn't want me to wait until next week. Today. Tomorrow at the latest. That's the perfect time. If you've been a Christian for very long, you've discovered the critical issue of timing, haven't you? There are a lot of good things you can do. In fact, James will not condemn anything that they have decided to do. But the timing of them is surrendered to God because timing matters, doesn't it? And so you're learning to pray. I trust not only about saying the right thing, but saying the right thing at the right time. Not just doing something, but doing that something at the right time. When do I move? When do I change jobs? When do I have that conversation? When do I implement that decision? When do I buy that? When do I sell that? And on and on and on. When I was in seminary, I convinced my sweetheart that the timing was perfect for us to replace our old automobile. Now, if you'd pulled me aside and said, Now, Stephen, what's really the thought behind it? I would have told you that, well... You know, now seems to be a good time. Besides, it's embarrassing. It was a bucket of bolts, and it's time to replace it for maybe a newer version of a bucket of bolts. And so I thought, now we can do it. Marsha had a good job with an attorney downtown Dallas. We didn't have any kids. I had a job currying. We had a little extra money. And so I thought the timing, well, it's perfect for, for this. Besides, I had a friend who wanted to sell me his little hatchback, had low mileage, something under about 200,000 miles from what I remember. So I, I thought, this is, the, this is perfect timing. So did I pray about it? didn't you hear what I said? I was in seminary. I'm praying all the time. I'm being being graded on how I pray in in seminary. (laughs) Uh, But not about that car. So my wife went along with me. We bought that little hatchback, wrestled the payments into our budget. And then it was about two weeks to the day that I found out about a job that was opening up currying for one company, which in the currying world, that's just kind of the ultimate. You're not currying for everybody. you got one one company. To make matters even better, this company was led by a president who was a believer, and several of his associates were believers. In fact, I would end up leading them in Bible study. It was a delight of, of, of my seminary experience there in Dallas. And uh, they had decided years earlier that they would only hire Dallas Seminary students. And they could keep the job until they graduated, which was wonderful that you had that kind of set up. And, and they did that because they could trust the DTS students, and, and second of all, because they wanted to bless them. They wanted to be an encouragement to that seminary student. And, and here's how they decided to bless that seminary student. They offered, and since I got the job, they offered me seven days a week, 24 hours a day, all expenses paid, including gas, oil, and even Regular detailing a beautiful new Buick LeSabre. Now I've got this hatchback with plastic seats sitting in the parking lot of our apartment complex, and I hadn't even looked at that car carefully enough to notice it didn't have air conditioning. And this is Texas of all places. I know, just go ahead and say, you dummy, what were you thinking? I wasn't serious, John. (laughs) now now I got this I got payments and we paid on that thing for nearly a year until I finally talked the original owner back into taking it back and I sold it back to him at a loss I've often thought about that decision which was practical atheism and did I ever pay for it? it cost me you ever jump ahead of God See, if I had only prayed about that for two weeks, wow. James is holding the mirror of the word up to the believer with this startling revelation that a practical atheist doesn't do bad things, he just chooses to do the things he chooses to do on his own timetable. Secondly, he chooses his own destination. James writes, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such. A city. This is where we're going to live. This is where we're going to move. You ever prayed about where you're going to live? You ever prayed about where you're going to move? Well, why bother? It's a great place to live. Fits our budget. It's a nice neighborhood. Well, why would God do anything other than just stamp, you know, approved, 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 approved? It's perfect. Third, he chooses his own tenure. James describes them saying in verse 13, we're going to spend a year there. Literally, the language says we're going to do a year. It implies, by the way, more than some casual life, they are literally planning to use that year actively. They are presuming they've got the whole year. It's at their disposal. They can use it as they have decided In fact, the construction that James uses here implies that after that one year, they've already set in motion plans for the following year. See, these men, women perhaps, along with them, couples, families, we don't know, they've got it all mapped out. And as far as they're concerned, it is all up to them. Don't overlook, fourthly, they're choosing their own occupation. Do you notice that? He adds near the end of verse 13. They were going to engage in in business. The word business is the word emporusamatha, which gives us our transliterated word emporium. An emporium is a center of trade. It's a place that provides opportunities for buying and selling and conducting a business. We, We consider New York City to be one of the world's great emporiums, It's a city of business. These Jewish believers are savvy. They've chosen a trade center. They've figured out all of the details on building their business. They've analyzed the right time to launch the marketing plan, when to show up, where to live, how to engage in that business. James never says any of that is wrong. However, what he's leading us to understand is that they are presuming that it's all their own thinking, choosing, deciding. They're also presuming one more thing. Did you notice? They're choosing their own outcome. Verse 13 says, We will engage in business and make a what? Make a profit. That is their ultimate goal, the final outcome of their enterprise. We're we're going to to succeed. And, And by the way, there's nothing wrong with that either. Why would God be against any of that? See, these are the five assumptions of practical atheists, someone who has placed his trust in Christ, but at some point in life, maybe for a month, a year, a moment, has chosen not to care to include him in any of his plans. And so these individuals are saying, I know when I'm going to start my business, I know where I'm going to live, I know how long I'm going to live there, I know what I'm going to do while I'm living there, and I know what's going to happen because of what I'm doing while I'm living there. You see, the practicing atheists out there, that's how they live. That's how they move. That's how they think. That's how they decide. We would expect them to because they deny the existence of God. Why would they ever include God? They don't believe He exists. We say we do believe. And James isn't describing them. He's describing those in the assembly who can live and plan and act in practical terms as if there is no God. Now, again, don't misunderstand. God is not against planning. In fact, He is against not planning. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, Be careful how you walk, making the most of your time. Ephesians 5, 15. He wrote to the Thessalonians that work is honorable. If a person can work and they refuse to work, that is dishonorable. 2 Thessalonians 3. Solomon wrote, Go to the ant thou sluggard, observe her ways, observe her industry, and be wise. Watch her, prepare in summer, and then bring in the harvest. Proverbs chapter 6. James is not rebuking these merchants for their plans. In fact, he's not even condemning their desire to make a profit, which is a good thing to do when you're in business. He is rebuking them not for their occupation, not for their anticipation. He's rebuking them for their secularization of mind and heart. They're living just like a worldling without any acknowledgement of God. just like the world they're all they're all about buying they're all about selling they're all about marketing they're all about commerce they're all about moving they're all about setting things up they're all about everything that god would certainly say those are things you ought to be thinking about it's just they've left him out that's practical atheism are you a practical atheist today Now, having described how a practical atheist thinks, James is going to describe for us what the practical atheist overlooks. He's going to give us two realities overlooked by these individuals. The first reality is this. So simple that, of course, we would say we we understand that and believe it, but we overlook it. Number one, that life is entirely unpredictable. Life is entirely unpredictable. Look at verse 14. You do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. Have you overlooked that? Have you forgotten that? You don't know what will happen to you tomorrow. I love the way Eugene Peterson paraphrased it to read. You don't know the first thing about tomorrow. And that's true. We we plan, but we must not presume. That March 11th earthquake that we've been reading about, creating those tsunami waves that hit the northeast coast, literally wiping out towns and villages, four trains, including one passenger train, just disappeared. Japan has one of the world's most sophisticated warning systems because of their location, and it worked perfectly. The residents of Sendai, the town hit hardest, received the warning and had, get this, 15 minutes to run. I don't know about you, but I went online and I watched the footage taken from an airplane that watched it, that 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 captured it was utterly terrifying and moving as you watched that wall of water sweeping in over farmland, gobbling up villages, moving ships and carrying houses and 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 boats as if they were toys. But what was really, really eerie from that vantage point was to look ahead at the camera angle and see a little village as the water of wall moved toward them, to see little cars slowly moving down a street, to see a man on a motorcycle with no idea of how unpredictable life was. You don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. All it takes is an accident, an earthquake, a tornado, a reversal, a downturn, a pink slip. And we're left with the recognition that in spite of all of our planning, we overlooked bringing God into it to develop our character, to prepare us for the inevitability that life is unpredictable. No wonder Solomon wrote it this way. Don't boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. Proverbs 27.1. Ladies and gentlemen, the emergency rooms today in Wake County are filled with people who had different plans. Nobody got up this morning and said, I think I'll break my leg today and spend an afternoon in the emergency room in pain while they ignore me. Nobody <laughs> n- nobody decides to do that. That's not their plan. The emergency rooms are filled with people who had plans. So is the cemetery. So you don't go there when you run out of plans. You're not put in there because well, I didn't have any plans. leads me to the next thing practical atheism overlooks. Not only is life entirely unpredictable, secondly, life is physically unsustainable. James puts it this way the back end of verse 14, where he says, you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. You you can't capture vapor. You, You can't get a grip on it. You can't handle the mist of of life and sustain it. It evaporates into thin air. We all live here in these bodies a vanishing life. Some of us are going to vanish quicker than others. We don't know. But we all live within these bodies this vanishing life. You cannot bottle life. You can't keep it from slipping out, escaping and continually moving until it finally as we know it now, runs out. Like the poem that goes, When I was a child, I laughed and wept. Time crept. When as a youth I dreamed and talked, time walked. When I became a full-grown man, time ran. When older still I daily grew, time flew. Soon I shall be traveling on. Time gone. If it were not true that even believers overlook this fact, James would never have to remind us. Which is a great opportunity, by the way, for me to tell those of you who don't know Christ personally, the words of Paul to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, today is the day of salvation. Today. Why would he say Today. Because you don't own tomorrow. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Today you've got breath in your lungs. Today, come to Jesus Christ, repenting of your sin, offering yourself to him. He'll give you this gift of forgiveness. Have you done that? Do it today. Today is the day of salvation. You you can't guarantee tomorrow. If you haven't settled eternity today, I wouldn't leave. You may not make it home. You say, Stephen, I'm young. I'm young. I know you are. From where I'm standing, I don't see an old person in here. Of course, you can't see the lights are out. But uh, <laughs> I read recently of the author, book just kind of swept the publishing industry a few years ago. The book is entitled A Hundred Things, One Hundred Things to Do Before You Die. It's sort of spawned a publishing genre. Just a few months ago at the age of 47 years of age, he fell inside his home, struck his head, and died. The subtitle to the newspaper article that I clipped recorded the words, He was halfway through the one hundred things to do before you die halfway. He was 47. Now, Some of you young people think, well, he lived a, a full life. <laughs> What's the problem with that? No, just wait. <laughs> I clipped another article just this past week from USA Today. Told the story of an undefeated high school basketball team. It was playing its last season, regular season game. They had gone undefeated. It was quite a year their star player 62 215, 215 pounds well toned also played as the uh, played the position of quarterback for his high school just a star athlete it was overtime they were down by one just before the buzzer sounds this star has the ball he puts up the shot he sinks it they win perfect season they hoist him up on their shoulders and he's grinning ear to ear seconds later he falls the court dead of a heart attack, a high school senior. Physical life as we know it is unsustainable at any age. Not one of us knows if we're going to see the light of tomorrow. Practical atheism would say, I've got all my tomorrows planned out, and I'm going to live every one of them, and, and, and I'm sure the Lord would approve. And so why bring him into it? And, and we're overlooking some things. One of the things James is reminding us of is that life is a vapor. The word vapor could be translated uh, breath, mist, like breathing on a cold morning. It just appears, and then it's gone. Or steam coming up from a pot of Water boiling on the fire. Now, let me just do a little sidebar quickly because people will use this text as, as a proof text for annihilationism. The belief that if you're an unbeliever, you go to hell, but you're extinguished. You won't you won't exist. And this is proof. James is not saying that we exist and then we cease to exist. In fact, he's using the same root verb twice. Meaning to appear. One positively, one negatively. What James is saying is that we appear for a moment and then we disappear. We are visible for a moment and then we are invisible. We don't cease to exist, we just change form. Like vapor, it still exists, just in a form we can no longer see. Your life is a vapor. You see it now, but quickly you will not see it. So if you're going to plan anything James is applying, plan on a short life. Don't overlook the unpredictable nature of life and don't overlook the brevity of life. In fact, businessmen during the days of James and on into the second and third century would often write the words memento mori into the first page of their accounting ledgers. Memento mori means uh, consider, remember your mortality is that an interesting thing to put at the, at, the, at the beginning of your accounting ledger? Remember your mortality. In other words, don't get so busy that you come away with the presumption that you're going to have that job and that life forever. So Philip of Macedon, the, the father of Alexander the Great, I was reading just recently, had a, a staff member who It was his job every morning to stand before him and say, Philip, one day you will die. Unlike Louis XV, who banished the word death from his court. You were never allowed to say that word. Whether you banish it or you have somebody remind you, God intends the remembering of mortality, the thought of death, to be something that does not escape our thoughts. In fact, the Scriptures repeat it remind us of it. Our lives, Isaiah wrote, are like the flowers of a field. They bloom now, and then in a few hours, days, they're gone. Job said our lives are like leaves in the wind. We're, we're like a shadow passing. Moses, who wrote the psalm, recorded as number 90 in our psalm book at verse 12, said to number our days to prepare or present a heart of wisdom to God. Number our days. Literally, number them. Now, if that kind of exercise does not lead to godly wisdom, if it just leads to some kind of morbid fascination, we wouldn't be encouraged to do it. Instead, it actually leads to a a heart of wisdom And and James will tell us to think about it. It is the cure, among others, to practical atheism. So, how wise are you? You answer that by answering the question how recently have, have you considered that you're not going to live like you are right now for very long? This is a good exercise. So let's do it together, okay? I'll lead you in it. Let's assume that we're going to live to the average age of Americans today, which is right at 77 years. It's inching up, but right about 77. So let's assume the best of health and vitality, which wouldn't include me, but let's just throw me in there with it, and and maybe you too, okay? How many days do you have left? Well, if you're 15 years old, you have 22,630 days left. You're probably going, sweet, that's a long time. Okay, well, let's, let's recalculate that in terms of months. If you're 15 years old, you have 744 months left if you live to the age of 77. If you're 25 years old, you have 624 months left. If you're 35 years old, you have right at 500 months left. If you're 45 you have 384 months left. If you're 55, you have 264 months left. If you're 65 years old, you have 144 months left. If you're 75 years old, you have 24 months left. If you're 80 years old, You can sit there and just smile because you beat the curve. (laughs) May God give you many more months. You can be like Charles Ryrie, retired seminary professor taught here at Shepherds too for a while. He said he's so old he won't even buy green bananas anymore. (laughs) Love that statement. Five years ago, I brought this vase to church. I thought I'd bring it back. This is my little exercise. This vase is filled with little green marbles, each one represents a month that I have left to live. If I live to be the age of 77 at the end of the month, if I remember, I pull one out and throw it away. That's all I've got left. You know, I I, I counted the marbles yesterday to make sure I had an accurate count. I'm supposed to have, based on my calculations, 289 marbles in this vase, but I only counted 251. I'm missing 38. (laughs) Somebody wants me out of here earlier. I need to talk to my wife and and ask. You know what this vase does to me? It reminds me that I'm losing my marbles. No, that's true. (laughs) Faster than I thought. but. No, it reminds me of something that I overlook and therefore can live like a practical atheist. The incentive behind this is not some kind of morbid, you know, foreboding. It actually reminds me of the brevity of, of life. Think about it. That's it. You know what it also reminds me? That my life now, as I know it, is nothing compared to eternity. Nothing. The unpredictability of life reminds us that we're short-sighted, so we need the direction of God. The brevity of life reminds us that we're short-lived, so we need the wisdom of God. Now, James will go on to give us two activities. We'll cover them very quickly. We'll call them, long title here if you're taking notes. We'll call these exercises Practical Atheism Resisting Activities for Practicing Believers. Okay? Practical Atheism Resisting Activities for Practicing Believers. Number one, verbalize your submission to God, to the will of God. Look at verse 15. Instead, okay, he's told us what we're saying if we're living as practical atheists. Now he says, instead, you ought to be saying this, if the Lord wills, then we will live and also do this or that. In other words, you no longer talk like you're the sovereign verse 13, I'm going to do this and I'm going to live there and I'm going to do that and and for how long and then I'm going to determine my own success. James says, you need to talk, you need to stop talking like you're the sovereign and you need to be talking like you're the slave. We have no will other than what we present to his will. Lord, is it your will? And so we learn to say, Lord willing, which is a wonderful thing to practice Saying. It's another it's another way of saying whatever the Lord wants. Let me ask the Lord about it. Let me check with the Lord. Let me talk to my sovereign master first. This isn't my life. I have no decision to make apart from what his will might be. Anything less as James writes in verse sixteen, than evil, arrogant boasting. So verbalize your submission to your, your Lord. This is how the Apostle Paul talked. I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. 1 Corinthians 4.19 I, I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. 1 Corinthians 16.7 Perhaps now, by the will of God, I'll be able to come to you. Romans one, verse ten. Verbalize your submission to the sovereign plan of God. I will go there, Lord willing. I will go to that college, Lord willing. I'll marry that person, Lord willing. I'll have children, Lord willing. I'll spend my days doing this or that, Lord willing. I'll make plans to, to accomplish some task tomorrow. Lord willing I'll I'll get that job I'll start that career I'll I'll move into that occupation Lord willing I'll move into that apartment or that home or I'll move out of that apartment or home into that apartment or home Lord willing I'll see you tomorrow Lord willing I'll be back here to preach next Lord's day Lord willing you'll be here Lord willing The Puritans loved this biblical command and they used it often in the Latin form, Deo Valente, God willing. Deo Valente, God willing. Deo Valente filled their speeches, their correspondence, they'd get to the end of a letter and they'd sign the initials DV. Deo Valente. Everything I just wrote, I'm submitting to him if it's his will. God willing. Everything is cast in the light of the will of God. Nothing is attempted or desired apart from the will of God. His will is sought above everything and for everything. It was more, James is not suggesting this is a cliché. We know the church doesn't need more of those. Okay, this isn't just, oh yeah, Lord willing. Mean it. Mean it. It's a passion. It's a life. Verbalize Submission to the will of God. Secondly, mobilize your agreement to the will of God. James writes in verse 17, Therefore to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sinning. It's sin. Now that text is often used to define what we call sins of omission. In other words, sin is not only doing what we shouldn't do. It's not doing what we should do. That's a good uh, definition of sin. But the context of this verse looks back to the previous command. You notice how the verse begins Therefore, therefore, in light of what, what I've said, the command I've just delivered, therefore, you know it's right to surrender your life to the will of God. Now, that is therefore, on that basis, do it. Mobilize your life in that direction. Don't just say, Lord willing. Do what you know the Lord wants you to do. But you might say, well, I don't know everything about the will of God for my life. I think if James were here, he'd say, well, of course not. Who does? In fact, he's not even interested in that. Notice again, verse 17, he's interested in the person who knows the right thing to do and does not do it. To him it is sin. What is it that you know is God's will? Do it. That's what James is after. A practicing, growing, progressing disciple of Christ desires to live and to think and decide in a way that continually says, Lord, this is your business. Everything about my life is your business. The practical atheist, though he would never say it, and he would certainly never say it in church, and he may never even consciously think it, but he lives it, he's effectively saying, Lord, this is none of your business. It's all mine. I'll plan it, I'll think it, I'll decide it, I'll do it, and I'll determine the outcome. May God give us a deeper desire to long for his good pleasure as he reveals it. One day at a time, one moment at a time, and to have DV written across our hearts, Dea Valente, God willing. One author put it this way, and with this I close Life is a gift from God. What we do with it is our gift back to Him. If you do not know Christ, you're not ready to get on that highway. Life is so unexpected, it is so brief. Maybe today you'll confirm that you indeed belong to Christ as your master. Maybe you're a believer and you know that you've been living the last few weeks or months, maybe years, according to your own will. And right where you stand, you would confess, you know it's not the right thing to do. You know what the right thing is to do. And to ask the Lord to forgive you and to begin that relationship once again where He is sovereign and you are servant. I'm going to close by reading the lyrics of a hymn writer. This will be our benediction who put it this way in this great old hymn. May this be our heart. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will. While I'm waiting, yielded still. Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Hold o'er my being absolute sway. Fill with thy spirit till all shall see Christ only, always living in me. May that be our prayer, Father, as we offer our lives back to you as gifts. For you have given us life as gifts and forgiveness certainly. We thank you. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen.